0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gomelski talk about the JCK Show, Diamond Market Challenges, light boxes' foray into the wedding sector, and Tracer.
1: Hey everyone! Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gomelsky, editor in chief of JCK and JCKOnline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with
2: Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCKOnline.com, calling in from New York City.
1: We're back home, both of us. Yes. There. Respective coasts, it was really nice to see you in Vegas. Yeah, it was lovely seeing you. Yeah, I always, um, you know, enjoy. It's like we talk so much, but it's always nice to actually see each other's faces since this platform does not have a video component. I feel like we have so much to catch up on, even just in the, in the time since we've seen each other. There has been a lot of industry news. I myself, and I'll share more about this towards the end of the podcast, but right after Vegas, I dove straight into a trip to Tokyo and spent three nights in Tokyo, basically the weekend, which I think a lot of people say is a crazy thing to do from LA. But in fact, when you spend three nights in a faraway location, you really don't adjust. So when you get back to your normal time zone, you really don't have to adjust back. So I must say I've had a pretty easy time of jet lag this week, but nobody cares about that. So how was your trip to Vegas? How did you feel being there? What was your sense of the business? Who did you talk to?
2: I, I talked to a lot of people. I thought the business was good, and I think the word everyone said was that it was much better than expected. That the trade definitely had some life to it, so that that was good. I I think the mood was positive, the vibe was good, the attendance was good, and it was definitely you felt like it was a post COVID show. I don't know how you felt, but I, I it didn't really cross my mind. I didn't really think about it. There's not a lot of people wearing masks. It just seemed very much like the old days as a Exhausting and exhilarating, and you know, enlightening is as, as that is. You know, it's 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 just like old Vegas. I assume you've felt similar.
1: Very much so, very much so. And I like that exhausting and exhilarating because I think that is actually the perfect way to describe it. It very much felt like a post or a pre-pandemic show in that way. I do most of my reporting because I write the show daily story for the first issue that comes out on the Friday of opening day of Vegas. And it's generally a recap of what I saw at the luxury show, which opens to invite a guest two days before JCK. And I was so struck by just the vibrancy of people's mood and what they seem to reflect about sales and interest and traffic on just that day one of luxury, which was um, this year was May 31st, opening day. Now, granted... Day one is it, at Luxury tends to be busy because the couture show hasn't opened across the street. JCK hasn't opened. So, you know, all eyes are laser-focused on the one offering in town. But let me tell you, people were in great moods. People seemed to be selling. People had rivaled recent past years in terms of what they said their sales were. And as we all know, recent past years were some of the best years the industry has ever seen. So yeah, I'm not suggesting that 2023 is in any way going to rival... Or beat twenty twenty two. But I think that some of the downturn we've seen over the last six months, maybe people just needed to restock and this is the opportunity they chose, you know, to do so. So it felt like it boded fairly well for the fall season and the and the final quarter. I think. Is that was that your takeaway too?
2: Yeah. And I think luxury in the high end was considered extremely strong. This is my personal theory and I, I don't really have data to back it up, but it's it's my theory. Pre pandemic, you're seeing the industry starting to kind of break into the kind of high end and the low end, right? Because the middle class has been squeezed. A bit, but during the pandemic there was all the stimulus and it helped the middle class and working class people. All of a sudden had money to buy, and I think that was one of the big things that helped the industry. Was that all of a sudden people who didn't have a lot of discretionary income all of a sudden did and were out buying jewelry. Now after COVID, it seems the rich have gotten richer, which just is predictable in the general pattern. So it seems that the high end is going to be probably very very strong this year, but I. I think the market in general has held up and you saw a lot of people, I heard the same things you did about people saying their sales have been comparable to 2022 and 2021, which is amazing considering those were record-breaking years.
1: Yeah, I was pleased. It felt like a good, vibrant show. I saw a lot of new designers. The Natural Diamond Council had their Emerging Diamond Designers Initiative, their cohort of six designers showing in a small ballroom adjacent or across the hallway from the main luxury ballroom and met some really lovely designers with some really great stories and obviously great pieces, the Black and Jewelry Coalition. had a fairly big presence in the design collective and that was great to see so it felt like there was both kind of a fresh infusion of talent as well as you know a lot of the same people we'd seen hearts on fire was back at luxury for the first time in many years they had a ballroom space as well as a kind of meet and greet booth in the luxury ballroom and rebecca forster the president of hearts on fire's north america business i can't quote her But let me tell you, when I saw her on day two, she had some pretty phenomenal statistics from their sales on day one. I I can't quote it because she asked me not to, but... It, it more or less, it blew my mind, really, what she'd said. So you know, I think that is a comment on and a reflection of both Hearts on Fires reinvigorated attention on the on the bridal category because they did present a new Vela bridal collection, but also a reflection of what we've been talking about, just the market in general, feeling resilient, especially at the high end.
2: There was a lot of interesting stuff about diamonds. And I just got a note from Jason Payne of uh, Ada Diamonds, who you wrote up his seminar a while back. Yeah. And he said so he was talking a little bit. And this is actually, I I agree with this wholeheartedly. And words I'd use to describe my conversations with both the lab-grown and natural diamond leaders at JCK was anxiety and resentment. There's finger pointings in all directions, both at and within the lab diamond segment. And uh, you definitely felt that as strong as the show was, which will give everybody a boost at both these categories of diamonds were challenged a bit. The natural is challenged because it's losing market share. And the lab room feels challenged because prices are really, really sinking. And according to Jason, I mean, this is something I didn't necessarily see that even though the diamonds are getting bigger, the quality is not improving. People are, are offering larger lab diamonds, but according to him, they, they still have the tinges and the Dad makes and all the other stuff what's interesting and you know i had a, a panel on lab grown at the show and i actually asked attendees i said how many of you sell lab grown diamonds that aren't grown in either india or china and there was probably i think about maybe 70 people or a, you know or even more at this seminar and when i asked that only two people raised their hands
1: oh my god wow and <laughs>
2: And I found out later they were from Lightbox, which grows in Oregon. Yeah, so it, it seems, th- th- and there was a lot of talk about a, a quote unquote lab grown reset that people are moving into fashion away from engagement rings. And the irony is just before the show started that De Beers Lightbox brand actually started offering lab-grown engagement rings. But there is talk of a a lab-grown reset and how the two sectors can work together a little bit better. And you did see a lot of people start to introduce lab-grown brands and more lab-grown fashion. And you saw a lot more lab-grown color. And you didn't see a lot of unusual shapes, but that's something that's certainly on people's minds. And for a lot of people, that's where this business has to go because supply is unlimited. And one of the things you hear over and over again is people, growers will complain, oh, you know, the business is so terrible. Everything is, prices keep going down. Everything is getting so cheap. And then they'll add, but we're putting in another 100 reactors or 200 reactors. So the idea is, so this doesn't become a Race to the bottom that people have to find a way to make themselves stand apart. I would say the same thing for the natural diamond business too. I mean, right now, lab grown diamonds have definitely become a, a race to the bottom. They're getting very, very, very cheap. The two sectors have to work together better. And you know, it's interesting because I had a bunch of people from Botswana and Namibia in my natural diamond session. And then I had a bunch of people from Botswana in my lab-grown session. And just having the people from Botswana, which included the Minister of Mines, it definitely changed the whole typical lab-grown sustainability conversation because it's hard to make that case with somebody who comes from a diamond-dependent country in your audience. So that, that was definitely a, a interesting spin. And I'm hoping that uh, people from producer countries keep coming to the show. And hopefully next year we'll even have Them on stage.
1: Wow. Well, so there's a lot to unpack in what you all just said. One thing I wanted to ask you is just to hold up and elaborate a little bit on this lightbox introduction. So help me understand that they, when they launched in 2018 at JCK, it was very much a fashion product, $800 a carat, never going to change. Really not. I, in fact, have a lightbox ring that was given to me during that launch, a lovely blue diamond, little solitaire bezel set that I wear when I'm traveling. And I always understood it as being strictly a fashion product. Help me understand, what is this move into the engagement category all about?
2: Well, I just heard about this a couple hours ago, so I'm still learning about it. When I interviewed the CEO of Lightbox, which was at the show, he said they might be interested because it's they're trying to be consumer-led, and this is a request that comes up a lot. People always ask them if they're going to do engagement rings, and that's where the market is. Ironically, as I said, a lot of the other lab-grown people are kind of moving away from engagement rings because it is such a dogfight and a tough market. But uh, De Beers is moving into it. They say it's just a test. I think it's, it might get some people upset. We'll have to see. But I was surprised by the new CEO's answer in Vegas that they were considering lab-grown diamond engagement rings. And I was also surprised to see engagement rings on... The lightbox site today.
1: You know, I'm just looking at that page now, and um, there's a pink solitaire. There's a blue diamond surrounded by a halo. It's kind of wild to see a blue diamond engagement ring. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's, nice. It's lovely. But they also
2: they offer the traditional white diamonds too. Yes,
1: lots. And and that blue diamond ring, by the way, it's a one and a half carat total weight. I'm looking at halo engagement ring, twenty two hundred dollars. Like, where does lightbox sit in the context of these falling prices? is it a premium product at this point given how far prices have sunk
2: it's hard to say but I, I I think it's competitive or you know in some cases above what other people are charging it's it's definitely you know when it came on it was this big shock oh my god $800 a carrot what are you doing and now prices have fallen and when and I should say that both retail and wholesale prices have fallen however wholesale margins have decreased and retail retail margins have not necessarily decreased. And eventually retail margins are probably going to decrease just because there's so many companies, especially online selling lab diamonds and selling for cheap. And uh, once retail margins decrease, I think you're gonna really start to see a lot of chaos in, in the lab grown industry. But I'm actually a little surprised because they kind of had indicated that bridal was a bit of a red line for them. That's what consumers are looking for right now. And that's where the market is. So they're just following the market, I guess, Right. It's what, where they see things currently stand. That said, I am a little surprised because it does kind of contradict its initial positioning. And if anything, the market was kind of moving towards what Lightbox set out originally.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Rough Diamond Experience is coming to New York City July 17th through the 21st. This one-day workshop explores how to sort and value rough diamonds. De Beers has a unique position in the world of diamonds in that they explore and recover diamonds from Botswana, Canada, South Africa, and Namibia. This course allows students to experience how De Beers experts sort and value the rough diamonds that they recover. It is a truly unique opportunity to study with the world's leading diamond experts. Visit institute.debeers.com to register today and save 10% with code JCK underscore 10.
1: You know, I also want to talk to you because you and I had a really interesting conversation at the same time with De Beers, with David Prager and Mark DeHeat. He's, of course, CEO of De Beers Brands, so that includes De Beers Jewelers and Forevermark. So the four of us sat down at their booth, which was a really interesting booth, by the way. It was made featuring all kinds of sustainable materials, including a really nice luxury card or look like luxury cardboard, um, I guess cork or recycled floors. You know, you'd mention the presence of a lot of people from Botswana. So there was a big kind of contingent of people from Botswana that were there and the new CEO, let's not forget Al Cook. So the booth at De Beers was a a real kind of gathering place for a lot of different topics that are, are really relevant right now. You and I were really interested to hear about Tracer, the new traceability blockchain program that De Beers has had a for a few years now, but really introduced in a big way at this year's show and opened up to the industry. And let's talk about that. Cause I, I was reviewing our conversation that I, the voice memo I'd taken and looking at notes. And then obviously I'd heard about it in Botswana because I saw it in action. In fact, because a lot of it involves high speed photography where they're able to take images of the rough that comes through their various, from their four different producing countries, Namibia, Botswana, South Africa, and Canada, and take images of the rough. And later, a sideholder holder can match those images out of their box of stones. It's really all quite advanced. But Let's back up and kind of do a bird's eye view. Um, How would you describe Tracer to somebody who's never heard of it? And and it's spelled, by the way, T-R-A-C-R.
2: I mean, it's a blockchain-based. And uh, at one point, I thought I had my head around blockchain, and now I don't really understand it anymore. But it's a blockchain-based way to track diamonds down the value chain. And it's one of the reasons they're pushing it and they're talking a lot more about it is the very real prospect of increased sanctions against Russian polished diamonds starting next year. So what's believed is gonna happen is that if you're bringing diamonds into the United States, you're gonna have to make a declaration that these are not Russian diamonds. And it's possible that you may have to offer some kind of backup to that. And if needed, then you could possibly take some of the information from Tracer and use it as a backup. I don't know if that's the simple explanation you wanted, but...
1: Uh. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I was going through our interview. One thing that David stressed was that it's the only diamond blockchain that works from the source, so from these mines at scale, meaning they can widen it out. Initially, it was this was an internal De Beers project, but when the war in Ukraine began and there was, you know, clearly the entire industry foresaw the need to be able to say these are not Russian Diamonds, they decided to widen it out to the entire industry. So I guess the key points here are, are that people who are not De Beers site holders can still get involved with Tracer. They have to be accredited and certified through the Responsible Jewelry Council. So it's not like just any player who, you know, may or may not do things above board, you know, can join that platform. They have to be accredited through RJC. And then they also have to spring for the technology that allows them to join that platform. So I saw some of the technology and it—it it, it was interesting to see kind of this image of a rough diamond on a screen on a on a computer screen and the many different images that sort of laid on top of it and how you could tell. I mean, I guess every rough diamond has its own particular, if not fingerprint, you know, at least silhouette in some way. I mean, maybe. Some are very similar, but when you have this very micro detailed photography, taking it from all these different angles, you're able to match up an image of the rough with the actual stone once it's been scanned, you know, at a site holder office somewhere in New York or India or wherever. And, you know, the one thing about it is that De Beers is able to tell you with certainty and it's then laid in and somehow documented by this blockchain certificate that a certain diamond has come from one of its for producing countries, but it can't yet tell you which producing country. I mean, I think they're working on that. But it's interesting to me that, you know, and, and again, we always turn to the example of coffee or Wagyu beef at a restaurant, you can literally go and figure out exactly the ranch that your steak came from, or the certainly the country, if not the actual plantation where your coffee was grown, but you still cannot find out exactly where your diamond originated. In the case of De Beers and Tracer, you know it originated in a you know quality producing country. You know that it was handled responsibly and ethically came to market. You know all that. And De Beers is certainly fleshing that out with this new offer they presented in Vegas called the Origin Suite of Services that is really a digital, immersive experience that it's geared to consumers and retailers where you get to kind of scan this QR code and learn about the producing countries and the impact that your diamond purchase has on various communities. But you still can't exactly find out, well, yeah, it came from Jwaneng or it came from Orapa, or it came from off the coast of Namibia. And I feel like that is a critical element that Consumers may be surprised they don't—they're not able to know since they are able to know a lot about other small things that come our way, like coffee beans.
2: So I'm not sure. I, I think actually tracer can actually pinpoint the mine. I mean, one one of the things that De beers has historically done is aggregate its production. Correct. So it comes from Botswana, Namibia, South Africa, and Canada, and probably Angola at some point. And they—they they say they do that to. Offer people greater variety. And, you know, not all miners have worked that way. Uh, when Rio Tinto had a variety of production from Australia and Canada, they sold it by origin, but De Beers does not for whatever reason. I think at some point that may change because of what you bring up. I mean, does the average American consumer understand the difference between a South African diamond and a Namibian diamond and a Botswana diamond, I mean, it's not 100% clear. And I don't know if there is any real differences between those productions. Obviously, some people might favor Canadian diamonds for whatever reason, just because of negative images of Africa. But I do think that the way the world is going, even if consumers don't necessarily notice or care, the, the way the world is going is towards more transparency. And that would include labeling the country of origin for diamonds and hopefully even lab-grown diamonds. But uh, that's not happening right now. But I would certainly like for that to happen. Well,
1: I guess the upshot is that clearly traceability, tracking, provenance. I, I think the way that Mark Jahit from De Beers put it was the new three Ps, provenance, people, and planet. You know, these are the overriding values were... that. Certainly De Beers is is promoting and talking about you know, over and above the four C's that these three Ps are the new standards for from which we all start. All a good thing. I mean it's it's all part of a really interesting conversation about how much this matters. You know, the thing I keep thinking about is though to your average diamond buyer here in the states to your average couple that's getting engaged do people come into stores and ask about you know is this a russian good i i don't even it seems to me that most people probably have no idea russia even produces diamonds unless they are really keen on reading you know the news i it feels like a lot of people wouldn't even know that that's a conversation to be had
2: i agree I think most consumers don't care, but I do think one of the reasons lab-grown diamonds have taken off is because of the diamond industry's negative image, as reflected in the Blood Diamond movie and some of the negative publicity received over that particular issue. And when I was on the plane to AGS, they were they offer you a variety of, of movies, and that was one of the, the choices. Was was Blood mm-hmm. Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio?
1: Did you rewatch it?
2: No, I. Yeah, if I haven't watched. I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't that uh, enthused about it the first time. If you look at how many lab-grown diamond companies talk about the "quote unquote" ethics and eco superiority of their product, it's pretty amazing considering you know a bunch of them were warned by the Federal Trade Commission not to say eco-friendly and not to use that kind of language. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these companies have been warned by a government agency not to use this language and some of them are using it anyway and i think it's a problem for the natural diamond industry and the natural diamond industry has long thought that it's gotten something of a bad rap and you know i agree with with that sometimes there's still tremendous problems in the in the diamond chain there's there's no question it's long felt that people don't appreciate and we can talk about this in a second the the good works that diamonds do for countries like Botswana and so i think they also see this kind of origin certification as a way to deliver that message
1: yeah well th- this is definitely a good time to kind of touch on or revisit this Botswana trip i did i neglected to say that this trip i was a guest of Benbridge of course the West Coast Retail Berkshire Hathaway owned very well-regarded retailer. um, Angela Hope, director of merchandising or vice president of merchandising, and Stacey Spiker, Vice President of Marketing for Ben Bridge, were on the trip as well. There was another group of editors that were also part of this Ben Bridge cohort, and then a group of editors that De Beers had invited directly, and including Stephanie Gottlieb, who was not an editor but is a very influential retailer. And her new president, Morgan, it was a really good group. It was fascinating to me that Benbridge had invited me because I've never been on a trip of that magnitude or any real trip that was hosted by a retailer. And clearly Benbridge felt it was important to bring some editors along who can help communicate that message that Diamond's do in fact, do good. Now, okay, I was a guest of De Beers, they treated us very well. But there were lots of locals that we were exposed to, including on our first evening in Gaborone, where we went to this remarkable braai, which is a barbecue at a nature reserve on the outskirts of Gaborone and had a really lovely music and dance performance and sat and talked to a lot of De Beers employees, all of whom were really gung-ho about their jobs. I mean this is a country that has, I think, along the lines of 23% unemployment. So of course, it's great to have a job. It's extra great to have a job with De Beers, at least from what I gathered talking to those who worked there. They were very, very proud. There was a lot of genuine warmth about the company and how it treated its employees. And I should say, after I wrote the story, when I got back, I got a lot of emails from people in Botswana thanking me for my story, which I've never had before. I've never had that reaction to any story, really, getting people from overseas, reading it, taking it in. De Beers has a complicated history in Southern Africa. It has a complicated relationship with its producing partners. We won't go into them here because we have very little time left, but I was struck as I was struck 19 years ago when I visited Gaborone and Juan for the first time that there are just a tremendous amount of people who really depend on the livelihood that they get from the diamonds that are mined there. And it is an essential part of that sustainable conversation. You, d- you can't look at a pit that has how many million tons of earth that's been dug out over the course of its, you know, nearly what, 40 years and call it sustainable, but you look at the community that's sprung up around it and the 18,000 or so people that live in Juaneng specifically where there were very, very few before the mine came along. And it's hard not to say, yeah, good work. This is, this is a really important, you know, development for this country and development for the people of Botswana.
2: You had been there once before correct?
1: Yep, 2004.
2: Did you notice big changes in the country?
1: You know, everything's definitely more tech- Enabled The technology I saw at De Beers global site holder sales was remarkable. Again, this tracer and the high speed photography, the security was just bonkers. I've never, you know, really been in a place that feels as secure. I think Fort Knox is even less secure than this particular facility where all of De Beers diamonds come through. So there were those changes and the pit. The pit itself, Zhuangang, is considerably bigger. I mean, 20 years of digging. It looked like Mars, kind of. You know, you're standing on the brink of it, and it's an awesome sight in all the ways that word applies. It was a great trip. I was grateful to, to be invited and to have that experience. I could talk your ear off, but we're right at our time. Otherwise, yeah, I'm I'm staying put for a while. I'm happy I got to see you in Vegas and now I'm home in LA for the foreseeable future.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I, I took kind of a positive message from Vegas just because of all the new initiatives that were being an, uh, announced and all the people kind of rethinking, you know, how they do their business and, and thinking about branding and thinking about offering something different And this conversation about a lab diamond reset. So I'm uh, cautiously, as they say, optimistic.
1: All right. Well, that's
0: a good note to end on. Thanks, Rob. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.